Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs. I am Andrew's younger daughter and on today's show I am delighted to introduce you to Dr Karen Dempsey, Professor of Flute and Musicology and Coordinator of Woodwinds at William Patterson University of New Jersey in America. Karen Dempsey performed Andrew Downs' sonata for eight solo flutes with the virtuoso ensemble Uptown Flutes in New Jersey in 2006. By this time, the work had become a favourite of the ensemble, included on nearly every concert over a period of several years. It was abundantly clear to Uptown Flutes that the work must be included on their next album, so Karen contacted my father to ask permission to record it. Later in this interview, you will hear from Karen about the serendipitous sequence of events set in motion from that initial contact. Uptown Flutes recorded the work for a CD entitled Uptown Flutes, 21st Century Gems, released in 2009. Before I introduce Karen to you, I would like to tell you about the extraordinary success of Andrew Downs' Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir, and I will then play you the first movement. Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir was commissioned by Margaret Lowe in recognition of the great flute maker Albert Cooper, with funds contributed with affection and esteem for Albert by numerous eminent flautists, groups and businesses, including Brannan Brothers Flute Makers Incorporated and James Galway. The world premiere was given on the 18th of August 1996 at the convention of the USA National Flute Association at the Marriott Marquis Hotel, New York, by the association's professional flute choir, conducted by Carol Nebushnow. The first British and first solo octet performance took place in the Adrian Bolt Hall, Birmingham, on the 20th of October 1996. This performance was given by the Birmingham Flute Day Professional Flute Octet, conducted by Carol Nebush No. Many performances of this work have since taken place throughout the world, particularly in America, North and South. Performances have also taken place in Japan, Australia, France, Norway and Germany, as well as many in the UK. You can read more about the premiere and subsequent performances on the blog of Andrew's wife and publisher, Cynthia Downs, at andrewdowns.com. Here is the first movement of Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir performed by Uptown Flutes on their CD entitled Uptown Flutes 21st Century Gems.
That was the stunning recording by Uptown Flutes of Andrew Downs' Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir, First Movement, Andante Misterioso. You can buy this recording as part of the CD Uptown Flutes, 21st Century Gems, which can be purchased at andrewdowns.com. You can also purchase the sheet music for this work at andrewdowns.com. So now to our guest, Dr Karen Dempsey, who received a Master's from Eastman School of Music and a DMA from Rutgers University and is now Professor of Flute and Musicology and Coordinator of Woodwinds at William Patterson University of New Jersey. She has published articles on flute pedagogy and presents workshops and masterclasses nationally and internationally. She is currently doing research in the US, UK and Europe for an upcoming book on innovative teaching in performance pedagogy and recently presented her research at the International Society for Music Education Conference in Thessaloniki, Greece, and at the College Music Society National Conference in the US. Ms Dempsey has premiered numerous works nationally and internationally. She recently performed as a soloist throughout China and as a member of the International Flute Orchestra on tours of Italy, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Croatia, Slovenia and Turkey. Her solo album, Recollections of the Inland Sea, internationally distributed on Capstone Records, features music for flute and marimba with Greg Janascoli, including the premiere of a work commissioned for the duo. She is co-director of the Artists International Award-winning chamber group Uptown Flutes and is featured on their four albums, including the just-released Streaming Dreams, featuring works by two composers in the ensemble. Uptown Flute's Carnegie Hall debut was described in New York Concert Review as organic, mesmerising. Uptown Flute's deserves major attention as they are top-notch and one-of-a-kind. Hello Karen and welcome Hello. to our podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Well thank you so much for coming on the show. So you told me over email that my dad is the reason that you began your research project. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely. Well, to do that, I need to go back to 2006 when Uptown Flutes, the octet that I now co-direct, decided to record his sonata for eight solo flutes. By 2006, the piece had become essentially a signature piece for us. Uh, We included it on nearly every concert. It was a favorite with audiences. It continues to this day to be a favorite with audiences. And we knew that we wanted to include it on our next album. Uh, So I elected to be the one to contact the composer, as we always do when we're going to record, and ask permission to record the piece. And of course, Andrew said, absolutely. And then he asked, when do you next perform the piece? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we're performing it very soon, in about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, 
you know, that's interesting because I'm about to visit my daughter. This will mm-hmm. sound familiar to yes. you. Yeah. Uh, and her husband. Her husband is finishing a doctorate at Harvard University, and we're about to visit them in Boston. Is Boston close to New York City, where you are? And I said, well, reasonably close, yes. And I gave the driving time, the distance, and so on. And he said, well, you know, we're going to be there at that time when you're giving your concert. Do you mind if my wife and I come and hear you? I'd love to hear Uptown Flutes play the piece. And I said, mind? (laughs) We'd be delighted. We would love to have you there at the performance. I will ask you to stand and be acknowledged in the audience and so on. So to fast forward a bit on this story, I invited both Andrew and Cynthia to stay at our home, my husband and I. We lived a short distance from the concert venue. And they stayed. They were delightful guests. And over tea, sitting around my kitchen table, the three of us proceeded to talk about teaching philosophies, talk about the importance of music in society, talk about the education of conservatoire and university students. And it became very clear in a very short amount of time that Andrew and I shared many of the same philosophies about music, about music education, about uh, the importance of the next generation. And the conversation ended with an invitation. Andrew said, you know, if you feel so passionately, as I can see you do, about these things, you really should come and see what we're doing at the Birmingham Conservatoire. And just to clarify, that was where he was the head of the School of Composition and Creative Studies, the school that he had set up. And I said, I would love to do that. So I realized, all right, let me think about this. I applied for a sabbatical, which occurred then in 2009. And I came the first time, this is my actually my fourth visit to the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire. And I came the first time for a little over a week. I observed classes, rehearsals, lessons. Doors were flung wide open. The welcome mat was, was rolled out for me. I, I was just absolutely fascinated and delighted. Uh, And I interviewed faculty and students, and I remember distinctly on the way over, on the flight over, there's quite a bit of time to think, of course, on an overseas flight, thinking, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do when I record my observations and have this information? And I realized I need to spread the word. So after that first visit, I realized, all right, I want to go to conferences, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and spread the word about what the Birmingham Conservatoire is doing. Because as he had said at the kitchen table that day, students are encouraged to explore and experiment and find their own individual musical voice, which is absolutely necessary, as we all know who are in the musical world. Not all conservatoires and universities do that. Mm -hmm. Some are much more regimented and much more, I'll say, rigid or not quite as flexible in terms of the curriculum and the choices the students have. But I was very, very pleased, more than pleased. I was just very excited to see the flexibility, the freedom, and the ability of the students to tailor their studies Hmm. to their own unique interests and in an environment that allows them to discover their unique interests. Mm -hmm. That's number one. That has to happen first. So giving students the opportunity to do that and then say, well, I'd really like to pursue this in much more detail. So from that one conversation, uh, now here we are 10 years later. So this first visit to the Birmingham Conservatoire in 2009 led to not only other visits to the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, but also visits to the Vienna Conservatoire, to the Paris Conservatoire. Mm -hmm. I just finished a week there interviewing students and faculty and observing teaching, and a variety of conservatoires 
and universities in the United States as well. Mm. So my observations fall into two categories. One is individual teaching studios I've identified as generating a particularly innovative pedagogy. So a single professor, a single teacher that is doing some very creative teaching. So that's one category. The other category, and the Birmingham Conservatoire falls into this category, is an entire institution that is based on an ethos of actively encouraging individuality in students, creativity, imagination, experimentation. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, after that, as I mentioned, after that initial conversation with Andrew and Cynthia uh, in 2006, I expected to find that, but I actually didn't expect to find it in every aspect of the curriculum at the Birmingham Conservatoire. So that was just a wonderful treasure of information that now at this point I've shared with my colleagues at many conferences, and colleagues have approached me afterward and said, Finally, instead of going to session after session that says, well, we're not doing this and we're not doing this, we're not preparing our students to be professional musicians in the 21st century and we should be doing this and we should be doing this. Finally, a session that says, well, you know, they're doing this mm-hmm. at this institution and at this yeah. institution and this institution, and here's exactly how they're doing it. And here are some of the issues that came up, and here's how they were resolved. And it's working. It's working. So colleagues would go back to their own institutions and start the discussion and right. say, you know, we could be doing some of these things here as well. And that's, to me, the ultimate reward for this type of research. So in the process of presenting my observations and research at conferences, I realized that I want to reach an even wider audience. So the goal is a book, which I'm working on now. That should be finished in roughly two years. Best of luck with that. Do you have a title for it? Yes, The Search for Musical Identity colon, actively encouraging individuality in undergraduate performance students. So I'm looking specifically at undergraduates. Wonderful. I look forward to reading that. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You invited him to give a talk at William Patterson University. Yes. So when was that? Yes. All right. Because of the short time span between our initial conversation and our performance, there was not enough time to secure funding for a guest speaker. But I thought I'd broach the question to Andrew If you would like, no obligation whatsoever, but if you would like, it would be wonderful Mm -hmm. if you would speak to our students. Anytime a composer, an active, Mm -hmm. highly regarded composer, is able to talk with the students, that is a wonderful meeting of the minds. And Andrew immediately said yes. And that continues to be one of the most generous gestures I've encountered in my professional life. The fact that there was absolutely no hesitation. He understood that it was too late to secure funding. I said, I'm terribly sorry not to be able to offer you any type of honorarium for this, but if this is something that you would be willing to do, and as I say, there was no hesitation at all. And what a wonderful talk. He looked at our students, and it was a sea of, you know, hundreds of students in front of him, and he said, it's up to you. You're it now. You know, it's up to you to come up with your own voice in music. And yes, it was a wonderful moment. He had played excerpts from his compositions, and in between each excerpt, he talked about the compositional process, which was wonderful. He had the students on the edge of their seats, (laughs) and they talked about it for weeks afterward, as a matter of fact, which in the student world is remarkable because, as you know, students need to go to the next thing and focus on that Mm -hmm. 100%, and then they're on to the next thing, and they need to focus on that 100%. So their lives are very, very much in the moment, which is fine, but they tend to then, that erases whatever happened, you know, two hours before. And so for students to continue to talk about Andrew's guest session with them for weeks afterward is quite remarkable, actually. And they continue to ask me questions about it. Um, So so it, it absolutely had a deep impact. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about him saying, now it's over to you, you've got to create your own path, because that's what, right. what he and my mum have always said to me, and I've really uh, valued Wonderful. Yes. advice. Yes, so true. 
If you would like to read some of Andrew Downs talks, you can find them on the About page at andrewdowns.com. I'm now going to play the second movement of Andrew Downs' Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir, entitled Allegro Vivace, again performed by Uptown Flutes. was the second movement of Andrew Down's Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir on the CD Uptown Flutes, 21st Century Gems, available at andrewdowns.com. Can you tell us about your performing career? 
Yes, absolutely. I have been very fortunate from a very early age to have been exposed to all types of music. I grew up in Rochester, New York, the home of the Eastman School of Music, which is considered one of the top music mm-hmm. schools in the United States. Yeah. And because I showed an interest in music at an early age, and because both my parents were amateur musicians, mm-hmm piano, voice, my father on tuba. So I was taken to concerts, performances of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And I started the flute at age eight. Right. So by the time I was age 10, I showed a very serious interest in music. In fact, I remember very clearly having a very serious discussion with my parents. I said, I want to play the flute and I want to teach. Mm-hmm. And those are the things I want to do in my life. And I remember later on when I was in my 20s, finding a piece of paper that looked very official. And at the bottom it said age nine. (laughs) So I had written this document Mm -hmm. that I wanted to look very official. And I remember writing it saying, this is to certify (laughs) that (laughs) I am going to study to become a professional musician and teacher. And I kept it in a special box. <laughs> so I knew from a very early age that, that right. I wanted to do that. And again, very fortunate that both my parents supported me mm-hmm. completely, meaning that at age 10, I began lessons at the Eastman School of Music in their right. preparatory department, which mm-hmm. is now called the Continuing Education Department. So I was studying with wonderful flute teachers from a very early age mm-hmm. and went from there. So always knew that I would be a music major in undergrad and grad school, always knew that I would pursue bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degree in music, again, from a very early age, and then was actually very fortunate. I should back up a little bit. So my husband is also a professional musician. Okay. He's a woodwind player. Saxophone is his main instrument, mm-hmm. but he also plays flute and clarinet. And we met as first-year college students. Oh, did you? Yes. <laughs> and we were instantly best friends. Uh-huh. So just a brief aside about this, I won't get into detail, but we always happened to be with other people and we would support each other through tough times with, mm-hmm. if one of us happened to split with the boyfriend or the girlfriend, that type of thing. And just, as I say, instantly best friends. And I think instinctively knew that if we tried to move the friendship to something romantic, it, would, it wasn't time, that it would spoil mm-hmm. things. But after we graduated, after four years, it didn't take long for us to s- discover... <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> that we were, as they say, soulmates. We just knew instinctively. And so it was soon after that that we were making plans to be married. All right. So people who had just met us after we graduated said, well, this is a little soon. This is, uh, you know, take your time. Uh, people who knew us from our first year in college said, it's about time. Because we knew from your first year that you would end up together. <laughs> so oh, wow. we've all just been waiting for you to discuss discover that for yourselves. So this is important to the story about my professional career because after I finished my bachelor's degree, about three years later, Mm -hmm. uh, my husband and I were married. He applied for a position at the University of Maine, and they also offered me a position as well. So we were very, very fortunate to be teaching at the same place in Mm -hmm. the same music program and so on. His focus has been jazz. and mine classical and to teach at a university with only a bachelor's degree in the United States is was very rare at the time and is unheard of now generally a master's is required for a part-time position and a doctorate for a full-time position right so we instantly became part of the music community at this not only at this university but also in a wider geographical area I played with a guitarist as a duo Mm -hmm. for guitarist composer as a duo for 10 years we recorded quite a bit that generated other professional performances and so on. My husband played with various musicians, which Mm -hmm. generated more performances. After about 10 years there, we realized "Mm, (laughs) we should either decide to move on or we're here. Because by that time, my husband was dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and I was chair of the music department there. And because we were both in administration, we were further removed from playing and teaching, which 
are our two loves. Yeah. And we realized this is not what we want. Mm-hmm. As a friend of ours said, are you waiting for them to name a building after you? <laughs> or <laughs> are you going to move on so that you can perform and teach again? Yeah. We also realized because we moved to Maine from the New York City area, we realized how much we missed New York City. It's just a wonderful central focus of culture in general, the arts in general, but yeah. uh, for musicians, it's Mecca. It's wonderful, yeah. you know. And we were missing that. Mm-hmm. terribly. So we started to send out our CVs and so on. Yeah. And our current university asked us to come down and interview. And we thought, well, lightning won't strike twice. We won't mm-hmm. both have positions there That's as we solid. have at the University of Maine. But in fact, it did. Really? So wow. they offered my husband the position of coordinator of jazz studies, right. which he is still doing. Okay. And they offered me a half time position. I was very happy to have that. And they said that may become a full-time position later, which it did. So a few years later, it became full-time. And uh, so I teach flute. I direct a flute ensemble. Mm -hmm. And I also teach music history courses. So graduate and undergraduate levels for all of that. Oh, fantastic. Yes. And because we were back in the New York City area, that generated a great deal of performing. So Uptown Flutes is part of that, but I also play in other chamber groups. I also do solo recitals. And for, let's see, we've been there 27 years for the first... 15 years, I also played with orchestras in the area. And then I realized chamber music is actually a true love of mine, and Mm. I wanted to get back to that in a much more focused way. So It all sounds fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Here is movement three of Sonata for Eight Flutes by Andrew Downs, Adagio Misterioso.
That was Adagio Mysterioso, Movement 3 of Sonata for Eight Flutes by Andrew Downs, from the CD Uptown Flutes, 21st Century Gems, available at andrewdowns.com. So, tell us about Uptown Flutes. Mm. My life has been filled with either coincidental moments or serendipitous moments. I really think it's the latter. I think the universe wants us to succeed. I really do believe that. And at our university, at most universities in the United States, tenure and the tenure process Mm. is very exacting. You have to document your strengths in three areas equally. One is either publishing or creative work. So for musicians, that's performances on a regional, national, and international level. That means also recordings as well, of course. If you're a composer, of course, same type of thing. But for performers, you need to document that recognition. So that's one. Teaching, of course is another, so you are observed on a regular basis. You're evaluated both by your peers and by your students. Mm -hmm. So that all is documented and needs to be strong. And the third is service, so that is on several levels. So service to the music department in this case, or a school of music in some cases, service to the university as a whole, service to the community, and then service on a larger professional level. So belonging to various professional organizations, holding offices, presenting at conferences, etc., etc. So you have six years to do that mm-hmm. at your institution, your new institution. So mm-hmm. although we were tenured at the University of Maine, it was really starting with a clean slate in many ways, not entirely, but in many ways, at this new university, William Patterson University in New Jersey, which is about 18 miles from New York City, okay. which is very convenient because yeah. we're in and out of the city all the time for rehearsals and performances. So I am getting to Uptown Flutes. <laughs> there is a point to this. So the building of your dossier and the tenure process over those six years becomes such a focus of your life that you feel as if every professional activity is designed to go into your dossier to support your candidacy for tenure. And it's exhausting in many ways, mentally, physically, every other way. Not that I wasn't enjoying all of my professional activities, but it was also the pressure of uh, thinking at every turn, Is this professional activity suitable for my dossier, for my tenure file? So once I achieved tenure, there was a great relief. And I can remember very clearly after I received my official letter, sitting down that evening at the kitchen table with a blank piece of paper and writing down what I wanted to do next. Here are the things that are most important to me to do next. And at the top of the list was... I want more contact with my flute colleagues because I realized that all of this focus on my career, my career, I'm the type of person that is always looking outward at other people. It really was not pleasant for me to keep looking at myself constantly. (laughs) I'm more interested in, you know, what can we do together, you know, uh, and getting to know other people and teaching and and all of that, you know. Uh, Playing is an extension of my wanting to engage other human beings, you know. Mm -hmm. The very next day, Virginia Schultz Johnson, who is the founder and director of Uptown Flutes, Mm -hmm. she started a group in 1999, called me and said, I have this group. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It actually started as a mix of my students and my colleagues, Mm -hmm. but I'd like it to turn professional. Would you be interested? And I said, you have no idea of the perfect timing of your call. And she said, I just got the chills. <laughs> and I said, so did I. <laughs> oh, that's and, amazing. And the rest is history. She said, here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to have you rehearse with us a few times, mm-hmm. maybe two or three times. Let's see if the chemistry is right for you yeah. as well as for us. And she said, I'm doing this with a few other people as well. At the end of the first rehearsal, she came up to me and she said, we would love to have you. Oh. And I said, I would love to. <laughs> Be here with you, and I am in it for the long term. I will stay as long as you want me to stay. 
Uh, Yes. So that was the year 2000. Mm -hmm. They had just been in existence for a little under a year. So that was the year 2000, and it turned completely professional then. And soon after that, another member of the group called and said, I hate to ask you this because you're a new member, but we're all contributing $150 because we're about to make our first CD. And I said, oh, (laughs) all right, (laughs) fine. She said, you know, we haven't been a group long enough to generate enough income to cover the cost of recording and and packaging and distributing, so we're all contributing. And I said, fine, absolutely. And she said, oh, and by the way, our Carnegie Hall debut (laughs) is next month. (laughs) And I said, well, all right, you really, you have the ball rolling very quickly, don't you? And she said, yes, now that we're all professional, we're ready to go. And, uh, you know, that's that's actually not unusual in the New York City area. The feeling is always, let's go, let's do it. We should have done this yesterday. You know, and so I wasn't surprised. And it was very exciting to do all of this immediately. Mm. And, of course, we all bonded immediately. So there were other new members coming in at the same time as myself. Mm -hmm. And in the process of preparing for our Wild Recital Hall, Carnegie Hall Mm -hmm. debut, and our recording of our first album but we all bonded very very quickly so that was the year 2000 and here we are 20 years later and uh, so we've made four albums at this point we're talking about our fifth one we have two composers in the octet which is wonderful so they write for the group as well yes it is yes and of course I've already told you that we love Andrew's work and we all teach as well many of us at universities Mm -hmm. so we encourage our students to get to know Andrew's work as well oh lovely Uh, thank you so Mm -hmm. oh It's a pleasure, (laughs) believe me. We all agree that his works are clearly contemporary, and yet there's also a sense of ancient voices uh, Mm -hmm. coming through as well. There's also the wonderful global feel of his music because there are influences from various types of music from around the world. Mm -hmm. Audiences respond immediately to his music. Mm -hmm. It's very moving Mm -hmm. music. You know, it has everything. There are some contemporary works that really make an audience work Mm -hmm. very hard and come away feeling uneasy for some Mm -hmm. reason, you know. They're not quite accessible for a general Mm -hmm. uh, audience. Andrew's works are very accessible, and yet for a musician, there's so much there, so much richness there. Often you get one or the other, (laughs) you know. um, It's wonderful and rich material for a musician, but it might leave the audience behind a little bit. Or it's very accessible to an audience, but musicians want a little more depth or or Mm. substance. Andrew's music has all of that. It's accessible, even to the untrained ear. Uh, And yet for musicians, as I say, there's depth, there's substance, there's so much richness there. So we all respond to that immediately when we began to rehearse Mm. his Sonata for Eight Solo Flutes. And so that, of course, motivated us to explore other works of his as well. I see. I see. Which other works have you... Well, Symphony No. 5, um, the Sonata, the Concerto for Native American Flute, Song of the Eagle, right? You know, it's really opened up a window very widely for all of us, not only for ourselves as professional performers, but also for our students as well. So Oh, that's amazing. We, we as teachers can introduce them to these wonderful works. Yeah, oh, that, that's just fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your insights into his music. That's really lovely to hear. Absolutely. Here is the fourth movement of Andrew Down's Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir, Allegro, with bounce and energy.
was Movement 4 of Andrew Down's Sonata for Eight Flutes or Flute Choir performed by Uptown Flutes on their CD Uptown Flutes 21st Century Gems available at andrewdowns.com We're really on a telepathic level Mm -hmm. at this point. We do find ourselves finishing each other's sentences very often. That's amazing. In fact, (laughs) at the last rehearsal, we stopped and someone said, so do you think, and the rest of the group said, yeah, uh, I I think, yeah, yeah, I think we should, yeah. Okay, good, good. Uh, It didn't need need to be said. We all knew exactly what (laughs) what was going to be said. So we all nodded and said, yes, of course, of course. brilliant. And there are two questions I like to ask all of my guests mm. um, that are important to the Downs family. Why do you believe music education is important? Mm. Do you have two or three hours? <laughs> uh, first of all, I passionately believe that exposure to music at a very early age and music education for all young children is incredibly important. That can be said for the arts in general, but I think music touches our humanity so deeply and allows us to discover parts of ourselves that we didn't know we had. And that's from a very early age. Children, as you know, you're a mother, I'm a mother, are completely unselfconscious, completely free, especially when they're given freedom to let their imagination go where it wishes. And music is a direct pathway Mm -hmm. to that imagination and that creativity. Mm -hmm. So being able to explore music in that way, I think is incredibly important and discover that part of oneself at at a very early age. So exposure to music in terms of hearing diverse types of music, Hearing it played well, Mm -hmm. performed well, sung well, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, but also creating music. And creating music specifically in an environment that does not say there's a right way and a wrong way. Mm -hmm. I do guest sessions at what we call public schools. It's the opposite here. In other words, uh, schools that are provided for any child from kindergarten through grade 12. So I will work with very young children. I'll work with older children in their early teens. And I work with then high school students who are in their later teens. And I make it clear that if I'm working with students who are playing any instrument, of course, often I'm asked to focus on the flute students, but I also work with all woodwinds and sometimes an entire wind ensemble brass or woodwind and percussion. I make it clear that there is not a right way and a wrong way, that mm-hmm. that this is a vessel <laughs> that can make sounds. And your goal is to find out all of the sounds <laughs> that this vessel can make. So for example, when I teach my university students, mm-hmm. if they make some sound that was not intentional on the flute, I'll say, all right, so let's look at that sound. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Can you make that sound again? <laughs> can you make it again, but change it a little bit? You know, in other words, it's not a right or wrong. It's physics, which is infinitely fascinating, yeah. and, and the possibilities are, are infinite. So again, back to young children, I think that's very important to introduce yeah. music making in a way that says, whatever sounds you make are wonderful, yeah. and explore and experiment. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. And our other question is, Why is music good for us? Well, there again, it touches our humanity, and goodness knows we need that. It touches our humanity in a very deep way, and in doing so, connects us. Roseanne Cash, daughter of Johnny Cash, Mm -hmm. came to our university, and she spoke to our students. And at one point, she said, I was in my mid-40s before I realized that music is not about praise or judgment. It's about connecting Mm -hmm. with other human beings. And I said, that was so wonderful. (laughs) Would you repeat that? And she said, I'd be glad to, and she did. But that covers everything. It's not about praise Mm -hmm. or judgment. Mm -hmm. It's about connecting with other human beings. 
mm-hmm. which can happen in a variety of ways. Audience to musician, musician to musician, yeah. however it happens. It's magical, and it brings us closer. I remember another moment when a wonderful colleague of mine, Carol Winsons, who teaches flute at Juilliard, when she was first starting out, I had a chance to talk with her. She stayed at my apartment, and I said, how did you decide that you were going to do this as a living and not just recreationally. And she said, I knew from the moment I realized I have the power to bring joy to people. Mm. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. And I think those two quotes say it yeah, all. They're wonderful quotes. I feel very inspired. <laughs> Good. So do I. <laughs> I think of those quotes really on a regular basis. Oh, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And again, I have to say, I'm so glad for this opportunity to talk about Andrew's music because it's meant so much to me personally Mm. and professionally, and it's meant so much to my colleagues and my students that to have a chance to really say exactly why Mm. is a wonderful opportunity for me. I'm so pleased. We are so grateful to you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you very much. I'm now going to play the final movement of Andrew Downs' Sonata for Eight Flutes, Adagio, with Solemnity. This is on the CD, Uptown Flutes, 21st Century Gems. Thank you. 